think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is never going to Move, get out of there. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I am currently the only host right now, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by a guest today, Mr. John Sorensen. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. And today we have John here to discuss many things, primarily his role in the making of Alien and the construction of the Nostromo and what that was like and what that era was like in filmmaking. But before we get into any of that, again, thank you for coming on the show and uh, hope everything is well for you uh, in this crazy world that we live in right now. It's a real pleasure, and I'm fine. Good. I mean, you you just worry about everyone right now, but mm-hmm. um, we'll, we'll get through it. We'll be okay. Yeah, for sure. So I there's a link... I mean, I, I've known who you are for quite some time now, but I know that there was a link someone posted where you... I can't remember the, the actual website address, but... Someone said, oh, they're supposed to interview you, but they couldn't. But you sent sort of a your little bit of a history of who you were and uh, what you've accomplished. And I started reading. I'm like, no, I don't want to read that. I want to hear that fresh. Um, so can you sort of get into your background a little bit and how you came to work in the film industry? Yes, of course. It'll be a pleasure. I'll do my best. Well, I grew up in a very rural, wild area of Scotland. We didn't have a lot of cinemas. The nearest cinema, we had to walk there. It was a good five miles away to the nearest um, little, you know, tiny little cinema. But um, I remember seeing movies when I was a kid and being very taken with things by, say, Ray Harryhausen, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. I remember The Cyclops very well. And I thought, how do you do that? I'd never seen anything like it. Um, and then various other, I mean, we had TV series like, obviously, Thunderbirds. Yes. The Jerry Anderson stuff. And I thought, that's, that's very clever. So I got a, an interest in it, and I always wanted to do photography. And I started you know, building little models and you know, things you do when you're a child. And I got fascinated by it. And, um, but I was always a bit of a loner, so I was a bit of a dreamer. So I'd take these long walks into nature and a vivid imagination. And then I started reading. Um, read a lot, actually, when I was a kid. Uh, Veer towards horror stories. Edgar Allan Poe. H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. All that kind of thing. Anyway, this whole thing kind of went into a ball, into a kind of a center. And I got into my late teens, I suppose, and I thought, right, what is this film industry? And all the, all the movies I was watching on television, if I liked their work, say it was a DP or a special effects man or even an actor, I'd start keeping a little jotter with all their names in it. I said, oh, I like this. I like this guy's work. So when I, I went to photographic school, to cut a long story short, it was only one in Scotland. That was in Glasgow, and I had to go there for a while. And all my assignments, I managed to turn them into making models, uh, various visual exercises and various things like that. So I built up quite a folio. And then to spin on 1977, I think it was, Star Wars came out, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um I thought, and I wasn't yet 20. I thought, you know, I really like to work on this. And I was finishing up photographic school, and then I had a place at Harrow, Harrow Art School, to do a film degree. And but while I was lining all that up, because it was the only way I could figure it, mean, I didn't know anyone. I was way up in the wilds of Scotland. No one worked in the film industry. 
you know, people used to say, well, what's that? You know, they just seem to think like a lot of people, the films just came out of the ether. But, you know, they just, <laughs> I said, no, you know, people actually make these things, you know. All oh, right, okay. Well, you know, how can you do that? I said, I don't know. So I remember going, when I was at photographic school, the weekends I'd go to the local library and get the who's who. It's a big book that the English have with all the names and addresses of all the notable people. Everything, everything from Admiral Sea Lords to, I don't know, MPs or something, anyone. I thought, yeah, I wonder if there's it. I'd just seen Space 1999, the Jerry Anderson series, and I had this, in my student flat, I had this tiny little 13-inch black and white television. And I used to, because, I didn't watch much television, really, unless it was a movie. I still don't. I don't even watch television now. Mm -hmm. I've just got mm -hmm. Netflix. That's how behind the curve I am. Yeah, me too, for the most part. I don't yeah. watch TV. No, no. And so Space 1999, who did that? Ryan Johnson. Okay. Let's look him up on the who's who. Anyway, I wrote to all kinds of people, all the DPs whose work I'd, I'd noted, all English, obviously, Alan Hume, who I think went on to photograph Return of the Jedi, but he he had a long history in British films. Who else? Uh, Sushetsky, Peter Sushetsky, who'd worked with a, a film director who became a friend of mine before he died, Ken Russell, you know, Ken Russell. Yes, yes. Um, so all that. So anyway, I just fired these, and we had no, we had no photocopiers up there so you just do a type i spend my night you're know, typing up the same two-page letter to everybody <laughs> and i send them off never thinking i would get any replies i doubt it would happen these days jimmy but in those days it seemed to work and when i got a letter back it was such a thrill you know people would take uh, the time to actually write i got a letter from alec guinness who had written to him, because he was in Star Wars, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes, wow. I mean, they couldn't all help, but it was the fact that they would write to this youngster way up in the islands, and they didn't know me from anybody. I can't, I mean, there was a lot of people who wrote back. Alec Guinness, I remember. He was doing a play at the Queen's Theatre, the old country it was, I remember. I saw it later. Anyway, with all these letters, Alan Hume wrote back, and so what I did was I saved up some money I got um, a transport all the way from the Highlands into London, a bus. And um, so I bussed it to London, found a little uh, bed and breakfast somewhere in the outskirts of London. And I'd made a list of where all these people were. And I would go out every day on the tube or the train. And Brian Johnson had written and said, Oh, you know, you sound very keen. If you're ever in our area, put it Shepherdson Studios, you know, drop in. Well, of course, that's not what I was often, you know. But anyway, you know, you know, God bless him, he meant it because I got to London. I went to see all these people. I saw Alan Hume. He was photographing a movie. I went to, uh, where else? Pinewood Studios. I'd never been there, and they allowed me into the set and everything else. Anyway, so I eventually got out to Shepperton. And here's Brian. And I show up just as young, you know, fresh face. I mean, I didn't know anything. You know, I didn't, you know, what is this film industry? And uh, I had a folio of stuff under my arm. Brian looked at it. Oh, he says, okay. He says, you look like you can take a photograph and you could probably help out with the models. I said, oh, okay, Brian. That, that, I mean, <laughs> I just wonder, what's he going to say next? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember when I was there, this is a wee thing. I don't think I've ever told anybody this. Uh, somebody brought in a, a device, and they said, how about this for the laser cutter? It was for when they were trying to get the, the face hugger off John Hart. You remember when he cuts it? Mm -hmm. He cuts one of the digits. It, and I don't know what this thing was, but they were going to adapt it, and that's what appeared in the film. I was fascinated by this. I mean, it was for some other purpose. It wasn't for... They didn't construct it. It was like, um, you know, make, do, and mend, because it wasn't, a, it wasn't a big budget. 
Um, it's like uh, Roger Christian recently talked about his lightsaber that he made for the original Star Wars. It cost about $12, you know, and he just, he just made it out of whatever he could, you know. So anyway, I said, ah, right, so that's how this works. And anyway, I went back up to Scotland quickly. I went back up to Scotland, didn't think anything of it. I mean, I didn't hope, you know, you, you just don't do that. And this letter arrived. We'd like you to start in six weeks. And that was it. I live with my grandmother, and uh, she she was a real individual. She said, uh, what are you doing? I said, um, oh, you remember that man, Brian Johnson? Uh-huh. Well, he's offered me a job on a thing called Alien. I didn't know what it was. When I saw the letterhead that he sent off, I, I thought it was the name of your special effects company. I didn't know what the film was, you know. Oh, okay, very good. Because she didn't, she didn't know you know, anything about it. So we went to see Star Wars. I took her to see Star Wars to celebrate, to try and explore with her and show her what I was going to do, because I used to make all these little amateur movies here on the back bedroom, and she used to, she used to help out with me. And I used to, you know, stop motion little things and experiment on Super 8 film, you know. And then she see this stuff projected on the wall. She said, how did you do that? She, she thought it was like sorcery, you know. She was born in uh, 1900, you know, so she'd been through all that in life. And all this, all this was complete. Oh, how did you make it move? I said, well, you know. And then she helped me out, you know, whatever. It's a bit like Ray Highhausen and his, his mother and father. They used to help him out, I think, with his wee films. Ray, of course, I, I met and got to know later. You know. Anyway, so we said, I'll tell you what, we'll take you to see Star Wars, and, and that'll give you an idea of what's going on. Oh, okay. And she, she's telling all the shopkeepers, all the little bakers, he's going down to London to make a spaceship. Of course, he's just... What? <laughs> it was like that. Anyway, so we went to see Star Wars uh, quickly, and she, and she loved it. She loved Star Wars. And she said, and she looked at me on the way back. We were on the bus, you know, to get, to get back. She said, uh, well, wasn't it amazing the way they trained that big hairy thing to do all those tricks and act? This was the Wookiee. I didn't tell her there was anybody in the, in the costume. You know, I just let her think. Anyway, a few weeks later, Jimmy, I was off, and I went down on the train to, I said, where is this place? Gray Film Studios, near Windsor. Oh, okay, so I had to get down there. So I had one suitcase. I had a few pounds, not much. I didn't know how much I was going to get paid or if I was going to get paid. I just wanted to be there, you know, because this is what you want to do. You've committed to it, mate. Just get on with it and see what happens. And I show up and on the first day, I go into Bray Studios and there is a shell of the Nostromo just sitting on a, you know, some kind of rig in the workshop, in the special effects workshop. All oh, right, okay. And that night, oh, I said, um, so I helped out a bit. You know, Brian kind of showed me the ropes. He said, you can, you can start off by detailing all this stuff. I said, yeah, that's fine. I said, what about the photographs? He says, we'll get to that later. When you go on the shooting stage, you know, when we're doing the models, you need to do your photographs there. So, okay, great. So I sat down next to this. I mean, all these guys I'd never met. There was about seven or eight of them, all varied backgrounds, all a good laugh. I mean, there was a very small crew, Jim. And um, so we were in there. I sat next to Simon Deering, the late Simon Deering. He was one of the model makers. We just started chatting. And it went on from there. And the, the day... And I started, uh, Brian gave me the back section, the original back section of the Nostromo. This, this was the full, you know, 16-footer or whatever, you know, the hero model, the main one. So he gave me that. He said, he said detail that. So, the, and the wonderful thing was, he just left you to it. You know, there wasn't anybody breathing down your neck. It, it was highly unusual. You were left just to do your thing. And Brian would come in once or twice a day and say, yeah, that's good, that's not good. And then he'd go again because he had other, other fish to fry. So we'd be given an awful lot of, you know, latitude in the creation of these things. End of the first day, anyway, I said, well, in my suitcase had been sitting in the workshop all day, you know, kind of looking at me. And I said, well, I better go and find a bed and breakfast or someone to stay. Brian said, no, no, no. He says, there's a dressing room. Up on, in the admin building, right at the top, there's only two dressing rooms. One of them used by Christopher Lee, the other one by Peter Cushing. They were done, you know, with the hammer films. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and there was a sleeping bag in there. 
And this little mirror, you know, with all the lights around, like the old... And I was in that dressing room. I lived in there for three months. And so it went on. That's how it started, anyway. Before I continue, I just want to introduce Patrick Green, my partner here on Perfect Organizing. Hi, Patrick. How are you? <laughs> I have to say, this is I was desperately trying to shift things at work so I could be here for this because it's uh-huh. so incredible to be able to have you on this show. And I, I was like, Jamie, there's a cancellation. I need to jump on this call. <laughs> so I don't know what you guys have talked about. I just want to say it is uh, such an honor to have you here um, as you know a piece of real alien history and as somebody with well, such a tangible link to so many things that we love so much yes. so. well it's a pleasure to miss you patrick i'm so glad you could hear it you know I, you you could be here i understand you work for oxfam is that right i do yeah yeah, yeah. that's great yeah very yeah. important stuff these days yeah thank you so much john i see you've got uh, the alien poster up on the wall there behind you there's, a, <laughs> there's, the there's about four of them <laughs> oh, really? yeah. okay My question would be, and you talk about as you're working on the Nostromo, they put you in a room and you're working on detailing. What does what does yeah. detailing mean? Detailing, well, when Star Wars, I mean, the average age of the Star Wars crew, I'm talking about the first film, was about 19. Wow. They're all very young. And so a detail would be something that would be taken out of, say, an airfix kit of a tank or something, or you would make them. We had lathes and saws and all various things, you can make them in different shapes. And the idea was uh, to place them on this spaceship so that it made some kind of logical detail, you know, logical sense. And it looked, obviously it's got to look uh, you know, good, you know, but you had to, it was very strange. You sort of went into a trance, you know, it was like sculpting. And, 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 and you, he says, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and the pipe's coming out of here. And, that. and so it was like, you know, micromanaging this thing in sections. And um, each of the details you stuck on, the Star Wars crew, they called them Greedleys. We called them widgets. <laughs> so we became we became known for a while as a joke, as the widgeters. So <laughs> so that's what it was. So basically, I mean, you, you didn't just stick any old stuff on. It was about three or four of us doing this. It was myself, uh, Bill Pearson, obviously, uh, Martin, well, two martyrs, Martin Gans and Martin Boer. So, uh, Bauer, we would do this stuff until we'd finished. I mean, there was a lot of surface to cover. And then we had the the hero, the big Nostromo tug. Then, of course, we started on the refinery. This whole thing went on for about four months, you know, doing this stuff. And, but we had a terrific time. I mean, there was such a lovely bunch of guys. I mean, we all worked on various things afterwards. It's a highly unusual production. I can't remember any fights. You know, and we were all very diverse from different backgrounds, bringing music, which of course everyone loves. I love music. And everybody would say, here, try this. You know, and you get everything from, you know, classical to, you know, pro rock to Ian Jury and the Blockheads. We just shared everything. But all that detailing, and as I say, you know, Brian would come in because they were doing stuff at Shepparton. Occasionally, I'd get taken over to Shepparton because they need something detailing or they need an extra pair of hands or something, but that it didn't happen too often. And so I got to see all the, the other stuff they were doing over there. But the, uh, the model making was very intensive, so it took a long time. We can't go anywhere in this. Mm-hmm. Well, Mother says the sun's coming up in 20 minutes. How far are we from the source of transmission? Uh, northeast, just under 2,000 meters. Walking distance? <laughs> well, There's, there's sort of two things that I, I would just love because this is this is like a first-hand account of the creative process of this film and, and I, I feel yeah. like I have two questions one's about the script and the first time you saw it but the other yeah. question is most of your involvement if I'm thinking correctly was around the summertime uh 78 correct this is yes, that's when, right. can you like 
bring us and our listeners a little bit into what that was like? Like, what was your daily experience on set like? What was it like sort of being there amongst all this film coming together? Was there a sense of what it was going to be? Like, what was it like to actually be there, you know? That's a wonderful, wonderful question, actually, because that's the stuff that gets into your bloodstream. That's the stuff that stays with you. I remember arriving and on this at Gray Studios, I mean, first of all, my first impressions, it was a sense of a sense of warmth in the place. And then seeing the bits of spaceships flying around, it was like walking into a dream. This would be in June of 78, as you say, Patrick, yes. And then these guys, I couldn't believe I'd arrived. I remember waking up. Oh, they gave me a script the day I arrived, Patrick. The screenplay of Alien, because I didn't know anything about it. I think I'd read a fanzine or something. On the, on the train on the way down to London to join the film. And I said, it's an alien. And I had a budget of $4 million. I thought, well, that's small. I said, mind you, I don't mind that because I was a huge fan of the you know, Hammer Horrors that, you know, they used to make for a dollar ninety-eight. You know, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful movie, you know. I, I love and, that. Uh, the Hammer Horror films are terrific. I am They are fantastic. That. And, of course, you know, Bray was where they made them. You know, the, on those on those um, on those shooting stages. So anyway, um, four million dollars. Okay, so all right, we don't have a lot of money. And I was so taken with it. I arrived on the Monday. It got to Thursday, and I was having the time of my life. And there was nothing to shoot on yet. Um, we had to get. There was no crew, you know, no no DP yet, no no camera. When all that started. Boy, oh boy, I was in my element. You know, how do we pull this together? Because I was aware that we'd done Space 1999 original negative, rewinding the film and the camera, and then, you know, plotting out elements. And the, the crew were mostly from that project. Anyway, I got the screenplay of Alien, and I crawled into my sleeping bag that night and read this thing straight through. Dan O'Bannon, oh, yeah, Dan O'Bannon, dark star, right? I said, is this going to be a comedy or something, or is it? Anyway, I read it. I was so taken with it. And Walter Hill had reformatted the script into a kind of format. You'll have seen the screenplay. But that was new at the time. Everything was very clipped and very focused. There wasn't any long lines of description. It was so it made you, you know, go like this all the time. You turn the page. Anyway, I loved it. I thought, so I'm on this. This is going to be terrific. And, uh, and then downstairs from where I wasn't addressing them, you went down to get your breakfast because there was a canteen down there. And, and then in the evening, there was a bar also, right? Directly downstairs from where I slept. So I was in there every night, you know, Brian Johnson and all the crew, Nicky Older and all that. Nicky was a great one. I'll take a large glass of white wine. I said, sure, yeah. yeah. And it went on from there. And you get all the stories from them because these guys had done all kinds of stuff. And... Uh, I wanted to hear it all. I asked them questions. In fact, they got pretty fed up with me. Look, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just chilling out here. Would you, do you mind I'm not getting the fourth degree again? Yeah, a fifth degree. I said, no. Okay, well, I'll ask you another time. I wanted to know all about everything they've done uh, because to me that that heritage is really important, you know. And then you've got to show these guys some respect, you know, for everything that they've uh, they've done. And um, so I was just completely immersed in this world. And I remember there was a, a phone outside. This is, and I went and I called my grandmother up in Scotland and I was so immersed in this. She says, what, what's it like? Are you enjoying it? I said, Do you know, I can't really describe it to you. I said, but I'm having a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she says, oh, well, as long as you're happy. Anyway, um, Monday I started. It got to the Thursday. And Brian Johnson, he called me out of the watch shop into the car park. He, he drove a Jensen Interceptor, I remember. So I'd never seen one of these before. And uh, and he leaned against it. And I thought, I'm going to get fired here, you know. <laughs> He's going to fire me because he looked very serious. And he said, right, how much money do you want? <laughs> so I had been living on a student grant for like, you know, 20 pounds a week. Or so. I mean, in those days, you know, it was a very small amount of money. And he said, and I suddenly, oh, yeah, I'm getting paid for this. I forgot about that. I'm getting paid for it. Anyway, quickly, he says, he named a sum, and I nearly fainted. I thought, I thought this was more money than I'd ever seen in the whole world. I didn't say anything, and they looked at me, and they put it up, and I had a 10 pounds a week because I couldn't say anything. He thought I was bargaining, but I wasn't. Anyway, so on we went. 
And I like Brian very much. And I got to know Nikki very well too, obviously. Brian went away to America as he went into 1979. He went off to do The Empire Strikes Back. Um, so we didn't see much of Brian after a while because he had to go and work on that. He'd made a commitment to 20th Century Fox for those two films. In fact, I think Brian was going to do Empire Strikes Back and Nikki. And then he said, oh, we got this other film to do. It's called Alien. Could you do that for us as well? And that's how it worked. So they got stuck with this alien because <laughs> it took much longer than, um, than anybody thought. There was only 33 shots to do on the models. But then, of course, later, Ridley came over and he changed his mind about everything. So we had to do them all over again, you know, which is his prerogative. You know, it's his film. We were on it a long time, nearly a year, I think. Wow. Does that answer your question? Definitely. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh my next follow-up question would be, as you're, you know, you're working in your own space and you're doing exterior work, detail work on a model or various forms of models, was there ever a time where they're like, hey, would you guys want to go into the actual Nostromo set to get a feel, a textural feel to kind of relate? So you were, yes. so they were able to let you into the set? Yes. That was the first thing they, they did with me anyway. I went over to Shepparton to have a because they were constructing the, the spaceship, Nostromo. Um, and as you know, I think it was Michael Seymour was the art director on it. And uh, they constructed this thing. It was very intentional. I don't suppose it was the first time it had ever been done. But for this, once you were in that set, you didn't come out. It was like a labyrinth of, you know, if you wanted to go to the medical bay, it wasn't a freestanding set. It was all a part of the same thing. So you walked along the corridor you know, from, from the bridge to the medical bay. And his idea was to keep everyone in this enclosed, you know, claustrophobic setting all day long. Maybe they got a lunch break, I don't know. But anyway, um, and so you got a feeling you were in this spaceship and there was a technician, who, uh, another one who's no longer with us. He was on the physical, uh, physical crew with, with Nikki. He's called John Hatt. Now John was a wizard in electrics. And he couldn't wait to show me how he'd, he'd done all the wiring on the bridge. And they killed the lights and he, he threw all the switches and it lit up like a Christmas tree, you know, all these lights all flashing. And that, you know, clicking and clicking and clicking like a, a computer working that you hear in the film was real because all these relays and everything were all closing and open. And uh, I thought, wow. And then the medical bear remembered that. Yeah, and I saw I saw the planet set on H stage at Shepparton, the piece of um, the derelict that they've constructed, the landing leg. There was only one landing leg constructed. It was a monster of a thing. And then behind that, to save money, they've, they've, they've made a shape out of, I don't know, plywood to give the impression in the smoke that there's another leg behind it. You know, they were trying to save money all the time. And, uh, but it looked terrific. This is great. I just had the feeling that this was going to be special. Not because it was my first job, but I just felt there's something about this. Fortunately, I was right. There was a kind of alchemy in it, a kind of magic in the air. Whatever magic or alchemy, this quiet, quiet foreboding terror, I mean, it's all yes. there. It's like this, yeah. it's like this microcosm that's like there's conjuring going on there's no other movie like alien like as much of a fan as i am of of all of the films in the series alien yeah. is its own thing yes i agree with you i mean i i watched it it's about a year or two before we got into all this um unfortunate business with this virus and they released alien and i managed to get to a cinema to see it on the big screen I haven't seen it since 1979 you know the crew showing really yeah on a big screen. I've seen it on video, but okay. that's not the same. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen it on video and DVD, but I hadn't seen it on the big screen. And they had this, you know, pristine print. I don't know whether it was the 40th anniversary, the 45th, all these anniversaries. I loved it. I mean, it, even the models, they stand up really well. You know, I thought, these look, these look really good. It could have been shot last week. Nothing about it is dated. And Ridley, I mean, he's gone on to make other films. And, you know, we all, we all have our individual journeys. And he's had his. But some of those, and he had, uh, who was the editor on Alien? Uh, Rawlings. Uh, Terry. That's it. That's it. Terry Rawlings. They work together, you know, hand in glove. When the face hugger, you jumps out at John Hart. 
in the first film. And then you get that kind of scream as it, as it leaps up. And then the edit outside to the model derelict, and it's just a wind blowing. You know, it was just so beautifully done. And, and it's like he was allowing his film to breathe. Um, I don't know that any of the other Alien films, I mean, they've all been very different. I have my favourites. I, I mean, I kind of like Alien 3, you know, I, I even like that one is stuff in that that I love. We're big fans of Alien 3. Yeah, so do we. I thought, I thought it was one, I watched that one many times and there was, there's a spiritual element to Alien 3 too, that wonderful uh, funeral scene where Hex and the wee lassie are put into the promises and they say these words. It's a difficult film to embrace, but you know, because she dies in it and all that stuff, but uh, you know, Sigourney. I, yeah, that's, that's my favorite after the original. Sigourney was wonderful. I mean, it was, as I said, there wasn't much money around to, to kind of spin off to another weird area. We heard that Sigourney wasn't getting very much money. She, all she'd done was some off-Broadway stuff, you know, but she was such a trooper. You know, if you were anywhere near her, she'd be off making you a cup of tea, you know, because you're, you know, she, she'd have a mug of tea or something. Just, just a part of the, the whole deal. Nice lady. Very nicely. You know, you're mentioning the 40th, uh, the 40th anniversary screenings that were happening in 2019, which which I was lucky enough to also catch, um, which was incredible. That restoration print was so good and seeing it on the big yeah. screen again. Went with a yeah. bunch of friends, many of whom are listening to the show right now. It was it was a it was a, a great day. And I have to say, I was worried about one thing, because in my entire life, since I saw it when I was seven, it has never looked anything but perfect. And I was thinking, and the miniatures in particular, which is, is something that's it's very easy to mess that up, you know, at least yes. for an audience member. It, it's easy to, to for the scale to not look right or to notice just by the way things are moving that, you know, the camera's not lined up correctly or it just doesn't quite work. Um, I, I had actual a little bit of apprehension seeing it in that restor- that restored print on the huge screen. And uh, it looked better than I remembered it on other... I, I could not get over how well it, the, the the technology just holds up so beautifully. And so much of it is because of the work that you all put into those things and to making it feel so believable. And I guess something that, I'm, that I've always sort of wondered about a little bit is what is the single, in your opinion, best thing you can do as somebody building miniatures to make sure that they translate to the big screen well? What's something that you think when it works, makes it work. Okay, well, I mean, first of all, it's plenty of detail. You gotta put detail in there and the sense of aging. We did a lot of aging on those models, what we call dirtying down all the cracks and crevices, because this spaceship had to, they had to look used, not like they were an airfix kit. You know, they had to give, and also give them scale. The other most important element about it is the photography. That's so important. Of course, we're not doing that. There's a lot of CGI, you know, and God bless them. They do great work. But the photography was so important. And to give it that sense of scale and smoke, a lot of smoke too. I mean, one of the scenes that uh, struck me was the major sequence of landing on this planet. And those shots of the Nostromo coming down over those rocks, that that shot where you just hold on that front profile and she's coming down very, very slowly. The sense of weight in that shot, it looked huge. And you, you began to wonder, this spaceship, because we were told it was supposed to be 800 feet long, you know. I said, couldn't you find a smaller tug? Because it was a, <laughs> so real, you know, to try and land this thing. I mean, it just felt so heavy in there. You were white knuckling, you know, hoping we'd make it, you know, because if this thing, if it crashed, you'd never get off. I think it's just that, and having a feel for it. I mean, having a physical thing in front of you, and then you can move a light around it, and then try a bit of this, you know, maybe a bit of filtration on the camera. It, I mean, that's what Ridley Scott liked to do. That's why we did so many of the model shots over. He'd start like that. He'd just start with a clean slate, set a piece of stuff in, move the lights around, and he'd be sculpting looking through the camera. I'd never seen that before, but this was what he liked to do. He, he had a long history in TV commercials, and they spent ages, you know, tweaking and moving things around. Then we'd say, and the, and the crew, of course, they didn't argue with them, but they said, what's he doing? You know, and the model's over there in the corner. Why doesn't he go, you know, just go and shoot that? And no, he wanted to construct things to camera. And once you understood what he was doing, we couldn't do enough for him. And we'd be standing there with, you know, bits of models here, you know, like, you know, moving here and moving here. And it was like a commercial. And it turned out he was right. This was the way he liked to work. He didn't know anything about special effects, but he, he knew what looked good. 
you know, through the camera. We just did everything to help him. Equatorial orbit nailed. DOR is in line. How's the status on the lifters? Give me an AC pressure reading. I remember because the crew were getting fed up with this. It's, Hang on, you know, we spent ages building this stuff, and now we're never. It says film, you know. Let's let's just see what he does. And I remember standing on the shooting stage at lunch lunchtime, the model stage, with my old friend Bill Pearson, who just left us. And Bill and I were looking at the the refinery with the four towers on it. And we were starting to get into this mojo of moving stuff around. And Bill and I were looking at this, you know, with the four towers. I said, you, I said, you know, Bill. It'd be better if we move that one over there and I move that one there. This voice uh, speaks out from the shadows. What are you two talking about? And it was Ridley Scott. We're just talking about the uh, refinery, you know, Ridley. We're thinking about moving that there and moving that there. All right. And his, his face lit up. It's like, you know, finally somebody was on his side. You know, it was like, I mean, you had to fight so hard on that film to get. After that, he came into the bar that night, you know, and Bill and I were standing there. And he bought us both a beer. And there was an assistant director on the film who'd worked with him for years. He says, he never bought me a beer in 10 years. He said, how come you guys got it? I said, we don't know. He said, you know, and he stood there and drank it with. Because we, we I, I don't know, I'm guessing. I'm thinking, you know, now as I did then, it's because he saw that we were, you know, prepared to, you know, try for his vision, not, not just a bunch of, you know, pre-prepared you know, pre models. You know, it was his film and it was only going to be done once for the first time. There wouldn't be another original alien. And so and so he wants to move that there. So what? Big deal. Let's move it. I liked him enormously. And nobody worked harder than he did. He was up 18 hours a day, you know, doing this, this, and this. This film was so important to him. And I could see that. And it was a struggle for him. You know, he was he was not uh, very hard on himself to get this right. So that's what I thought of him. I liked him very much in those days. I don't know what he's like now. I've gone back a long time. I've seen the Jillists which was his first film. I remember talking to him about filters because I was, you know, you know, a photographer. We talked about the jurists because this, this is how you learn. This is my film school. You know, you, you get this from the horse's mouth, this stuff. And I said, yeah, I said, I see, you know, Stanley Kubrick used a lot of the same techniques. Yeah, Barry Lyndon. I said, you know, Kubrick, I said, the jurists look very similar to Barry Lyndon. He said, ah, oh, yeah, he says, he says, Kubrick. He said, we've been using those filters and smoke for years. He said, we did it first. He was very protective of his look. I said, yeah, I said, I know that. I said, but, you know, Barry Lyndon was a, was a fine-looking film. He said, oh, yeah, 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 it was, he said. But he said, then he said, we did it first, though. <laughs> he was very approachable. He worked hard. And you could tell he was learning, too. I mean, he'd done commercials, but it's not the same as doing a feature film. But he was learning his craft and saying, oh, does this work, does this work? Later, I worked with his brother on a couple of commercials, you know, Tony Scott. I was on a camera crew assistant, you know, we did these commercials. If I thought, if I thought Ridley was driven, and he's the older brother, you should have seen Tony. Ash, can you see this? Yes, I can. I've never seen anything like it. The film did evolve, as you said. Patrick, that we went from, because I was there from June 78, I didn't come off it till April 79. It seemed to go through chapters, the whole creative process. We started off in this wonderful summer by the river and everybody would get together for, you know, Friday night and just sit around, you know, by the river, you know, with the swans going up and down. And then we moved into the winter where it was dark and cold. And then we were doing all kinds of model things and insects, up, you know, with the brains coming out the skulls, you know, we we set them up in a wee corner, or Ian Holmes' head, you know, sticking up through the table, you know, ash, you know, when they disconnected him. It just felt like a kind of odyssey, and you become a part of it. It was like a fluid in your veins. You just lived this thing. All right. Moving on to second position. What is it? Let's get out of here. We've got this far, we must go on. We have to go on. So when it ended, I mean, what a wrench. We'd all been in this thing together, and for me, it was, a, it was an education. And oh, I see, so this is what it feels like when it finishes. So because I knew uh, 
well, it was my first thing. But I mean, I was so lucky to have as a first assignment Alien. You couldn't have wished you know, for a better, better job and a better bunch of people. Some of them, many of them, I've kept in touch with from all, you know, all across the, um, the production. It was a special time, guys. I bet. So it sounds like you you were working on detail and you're working on the Nostromo, but then you moved into working on things that were being filmed, like Ian Holmes' yes. head. And what was yes. that process like moving from a very small or a studio space with a model um, working on that for months to, hey, you're on set now and we need to make sure that this looks good. How was that transition? You know, it was great because that was really where I wanted to be. The model making was terrific. It's like I'm talking about it being in chapters. Your chapter one was being in the, in the workshop with all those guys, which was a kind of routine. It was a kind of existence. It's like I'm talking about it, you know, getting in your bloodstream. And then when he started shooting, I remember I said to either Brian or Nikki Alder, I said, look, I want to be over there, you know, helping them set up because that was, and in any event, a part of my job was to take stills. Ryan Johnson had this idea that he would use, they've done it on Space 1999, you take a photograph, a black and white photograph of the, say the front of the model, you blow it up, and then you would back project people moving around it, inside of it. You see the still, unless you're making a 3D film, it doesn't matter, you know, if it's lit properly, you can get away with just using a still photograph. So we did some of that. So that got me over there. And every day they were shooting, they were shooting models, and I was fascinated by the movie cameras. Mitchell S35 was the workhorse. I'd never seen one before. They were the proper Panavision, because they were shooting the models in widescreen as well as the feature films. So they were using uh, spherical lenses, which created problems of depth of field. All this stuff I was learning and the way they plotted out. So I would be there helping to set up, you're helping to move things around. If you want a camera, I'd just be a, a general assist on the unit. If a piece fell off the model, I'd fix it, all that kind of stuff. And that is where I wanted to be. I don't want to be anywhere else but that. I got to know the DP, Denny Ailing, very well. We just had a laugh. And, and there was a certain, you know, there was a fair bit of experimentation, you know, to get those shots. I mean, there was a you know, stop me if I'm going off on tangents or talking too much. There was the shot, the shot where you see the alien refinery, very tiny in the shot, and he's going into orbit. You see the main planet, and then and then there's rings, and then you know it's quite a wide shot in space. That took four days. We did it all on the camera, rewinding the camera, rewinding the camera, putting in the rings, rewinding the camera, you know, putting in that. This whole thing and you know, having to work out the exposures. It was a great learning experience for me. Every morning they had this very small rushes theater, you guys call them dailies, I think, in America. We'd go in in the morning and see what we'd done yesterday. And it was like an adventure. Even the projectionist got in on it. He was this guy, he was a projectionist. He'd been a projectionist in the days of Hammer. So he'd been there since the Stone Age, you know. If, you saw, if we had a shot the model going overhead in the dailies, and he'd suddenly come up with a sound effect. He said, so what's this? He'd have a Welsh choir singing. <laughs> Model went over. He just thought, he, he was so enthused by it all, he wanted to be creative and be part of it. So we wonder what kind of sound effect he was going to come up with next. Well, his Welsh, you know, male singers all in your know, low bass. <laughs> and he'd turn it right up. So the speak. Well, the speakers are distorting, you know, as the ship went over. Just wonderful people. We, we had people there. There was an electrician, you know, quickly to, and he'd been with Hammer. He'd, he'd been with Bray for ages. He seemed to be totally invincible to electricity. He'd come on the stage and there were, there were, there'd be two anodes on the wall where you hook on the wires and you say to him, are they alive? He says, you just grab them. And this shot would go through him. I said, my God, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it always, so there was this old school feel to it all, working with models. And, I mean, we didn't have any motion control. I mean, that was a legend. Somewhere in, you know, in San Francisco, they were doing motion control, but we didn't need it anyway. I mean, we didn't need motion control. There were some experiments. I remember Nikki having some experiments, and, you know, with uh, stepping motors and various things, but we didn't need it. It wasn't that kind of film. But uh, some of these 
I mean, this was a wonderful thing, the heritage thing again. Um, and then you get these stories, the days of making Frankenstein, you know, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. You just wanted to know all of it, right? And they'd done the Rocky Horror Picture Show also, just before we went in there. And the tank was lying there with the studio backlog, you know, where the, the creature was in. It's just like, as you say, Patrick, I mean, it's just all a part of the, the whole experience. It did get me blushed. You know, you're mentioning um, the Mitchell camera that you guys were using, and, and it's yeah. the, the only sort of Mitchell trivia that I know is that they invented, I think, the first filmable 70 millimeter camera in the 1920s. Yes, I believe, which is insane. And I'm, I'm just I, I, the reason I'm getting into that is because, to me, uh, something that we've talked about quite a bit on this show, and something that you have probably the be best experience with of literally anybody that we will ever talk to. So I want to ask you about it. Is yeah. uh, filmmaking, as you said, used to take a lot longer in a lot of ways, right? So, for example, that shot with the rings and the planet, matching exposures, matching yeah. takes, matching the you know the angle of the shot, matching the you know the lens. Um, having to go back and physically rewind the film and tape it and blah, 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 all, the, all these these various manual things, right? Yes. Um, that, for the most part, in mainstream filmmaking doesn't exist anymore. And, and, no. and, I, and I'm wondering, what's your perspective on that as an artist and as somebody who has been around for both of those sort of phases? And what do you think it changes about the process or, or does it? I think it does change the process. I mean, it has to. It has to. The physical reality of seeing these things and having them in front of you. And, and I remember the actor who played the captain, Dallas, uh, Tom Skerritt, he came over to Bray, maybe he had a day off, and he, suddenly I looked around and he's standing next to me, and I recognize him from the Rushish, you know, you know, from the Baileys. And he's just, he's looking at these models in awe. You're physical, and he walks up to the Nostromo and he touches it, you know. You can't do that with a CGI image. And he looked round at me and he said, and he looked round at me, he said, you know, this film really is going to be something. That's the physicality of being able to see that stuff. And then the physicality of, I mean, I don't know how they can do, you've got these completely, you know, green screen productions where they put in all the sets and everything afterwards. I mean, that doesn't give the actors a chance, does it really? How can it? There's nothing to react to. The idea that they had them in this set at Shepparton the Nostromo Bridge and all that stuff, and they never got out of it. And it started to make them cranky and tired. Yafet, he didn't like um, uh, Bolaji, who played the alien. They got really cranky, you know? So that's the kind of physicality of it. I don't see that you could get... I mean, CGI guys are very, very clever. You know, some of their work is awesome, but it, it's a totally alien process. It, it's a different process. You either... I don't know whether they should call it electronic film production you know, where they don't do any sets. You know, it, it, it's another species of filmmaking, you know, completely. To be physically, even having an actor in it that you know, if you're doing, I was doing the models, I was helping, you know, contributing to the models. And I heard that, I wasn't long arrived, I heard that uh, John Finch was going to be in the film. It turned out he wasn't because he got ill, had to be replaced by John Hart. But I was a huge fan of John Finch. He'd done a couple of films I liked very much. And as I'm working on this model, I said, ah, oh, you know, your, your neurons start firing. You says, ah, oh, he's going to be walking around inside this spaceship and I'm sticking on a piece here. You know, it's that kind of thing. And, and that's the alchemy of it. Of course, I was disappointed he got sick. But John Hart, of course, was terrific. I don't know. The, there's something about... It's like I don't, you know, any, any, any little thing I've done, you know, uh, personal projects of my own. I love being on location. I don't like being stuck inside four walls in a studio. It's fine, you know, if that's what you gotta do, but the location, the physicality of the location is also a star. And you make a better film, I think. No, we were lucky to be able to make those things physically.
You mentioned uh, Bolaji, and I'm curious, in the beginning of your work on the picture, of course, the film is titled Alien. You know this, you read the script. Was was there a time that they were like, okay, we're going to let you guys see the creature? Or was Because yeah. I know, like, there's images of, you know, can't go on the set. Things seem very private, very closed off. And I was I was curious if there was also restrictions with within the people working like, okay, we're not showing this to anybody right now. What was that like for you? Yeah, that's right. And uh, everything you say is, is completely correct. There, there was a lot of secrecy, mainly because, I mean, it wasn't just only, you know, Fox, you know, trying to, you know, protect their investment. No one was quite sure if it would work because after all, you know, what we ended up with was a man in a suit. It don't matter if it's H.R. Giger. I mean, no, no one knew Giger from a hole in the wall. He was just this wonderful Swiss artist who came over. And so how is this thing going to evolve? And of course, even after it was completed, the biggest asset they had in that film in terms of the alien was actually Bellagio. Again, the physicality we're talking about. He was a Maasai. He, come, he was a Maasai. He was, he was extremely tall and extremely thin. The way he moved was different to maybe you or I. He had this kind of stealth. I can't describe it. The first time they did a mock-up with him in you know, half a costume. And it scared the living daylights out of you. know, it was just the way he was moving. It was like a, I don't know, a Maasai stalking something. It was, it was, I don't know, it was just something. I thought they've, they've really found something with this guy. And of course, they've never used anyone quite like that since, have they, really? I don't know who's done them. I mean, they did great work in the sequels, but this was one creature. He was very skinny, but extremely you know, strong. And he could get his body into, you know, he could twist it and do all kinds of stuff with it. That's how it worked. I think I think he contributed, and he doesn't get enough credit for it. He was the alien. I know there there were stuntmen, you know, stood in for him and did various things. There are shots in that film. There's one, it's near the end of the film, and he's standing over Veronica. It's in the engine room, isn't it? Yafet's just just been killed. And you just see this huge thing, this kind of skeletal, just moving towards her. Again, it's more of that alchemy, isn't it? And then the first time we saw it, Balaji, um, well, we saw a lot of it, but he came over, we had to do a photo shoot. There was always stuff going on. There was a photo shoot with Fox with alien costume. And we, you know, we, we built a wee bit of a set, you know, that he could kind of hide in, you know, with a pipe. And he would just sit there, you know, and he'd crouch, you know, on this bloody head, you know, scared hell out of him. And of course, you know, H.R. Giger, wonderful, wonderful artist. found this lane there. No blood. No Dallas. Nothing. How come I don't hear anybody saying nothing around I'm this thinking. place? Unless somebody has got a better idea. We'll proceed with Dallas's plan. What? And end up like the others? <laughs> no, you're out of your mind. You got a better idea? Yes. I say that we abandon the ship. We get the shuttle and just get the hell out of here. We take our chances and just hope that somebody picks us up. The shuttle won't take four. Well, I was actually going to ask about, about Giger. Um, and I also want to say, listeners, there's footage of these movement tests that John is talking about out there on okay. the internet with Bellagio. And, and you can see the way that even just with a helmet on in a, in a yes. black outfit, um, yeah. it, that movement is, is that's that's the mm -hmm. alien right there. Um, yes. So you were on set with Giger, right? Yes. At, oh, yes. What was that What was that like? What was what was it like when he came there and working around him? And was there like a, a vibe or, you know, what, what was what was it like? What was he like? The thing about Giger, it's like the role of our heroes, a couple of my work, uh, film directors who I got to meet before they died. And uh, one of them, Ken Russell, and he had a reputation for being a bit of a monster. He was nothing like that. He was a sane, quiet, it was an act, this, you know, playing the film director. It wasn't anything meant to be nasty. By the same measure, H.R. Giger, when you saw his artwork, you're expecting, I don't know, Jack the Ripper or something. But he was this very quiet, very gentle, very gentle individual, like Ridley Scott. 
like a lot of us, you know, he took his work a lot more seriously than he took himself. So important to him. And he was in a new field. He, he hadn't really done any film. So he was suddenly, suddenly he had to take his, his designs and make them into a 3D thing, make them alive, take it out of the painting. And that for him was a, was a learning experience. And so he was assigned various sculptors, you know, to help him and to basically do what he wanted. But he didn't know if it was going to work any more than anyone else. He just had this vision. Again, it's all part of what I keep saying. I know it's a bore, but you know, alchemy. Where did Giga come from? It was like he dropped out of the sky. And he was there making these things. But he was very quiet, very gentle, very modest. That's what I remember about him. I just have a, a, a fanboy question for you. Were you able to go on the set with the space jockey? Yes. Yeah. What was that like? Yes. That was at Shepparton. That was one. Well, again, this was, <laughs> this was the thing, this sense of this thing getting under your skin. I first saw that. What on earth? Of course, this was HR Giga. And of course, I come down uh, from Scotland, like, a, and I'd read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stories. This kind of otherworldliness. There was a lot of Lovecraft in the original Alien. I think Dan O'Bannon. I think he said that once before he died. The original film, they were not monsters. They had a different set of rules to us. That's all it was. And they saw us as this, this, and this. And the space jockey. There was no talk about the space jockey being the engineers. You know, we got that stuff in Prometheus. None of that stuff was around. It was just something they found on this spaceship, unexplained, hinted at, and the rib cage had broken out, and it was you know, frozen into this fantastic-looking chair and this instrument that was more organic than anything else. There was a lot of that kind of talk, this, this um, organic look to everything. There was a lot of that in Alien. We hadn't seen much of that, I don't think. Again, that came out of Giga. Everything had to be organic. When I first saw it, I remember thinking that this thing in the chair was nothing to do with the aliens. It was another story. And I loved the fact it was a mystery. It was just left. You saw it, and then you moved on. And these things were planted all through the film, I think. There was more hint of that. Even the, the inside of the alien spaceship, you know, the derelict, with all the eggs, you know, when John Hurt was lowered, lowered down and all those Holoco lasers. Um, Holoco was a, a shepherd of the company that did lasers for rock rock shows. Anton First, I think, was the guy who ran the company. Later went on to become an art director, production director. And these lasers and all these eggs. And you just got these bits of jigsaw puzzle. And you're thinking, as you watch the film for the first time, what the hell happens here? What are these things? What's the story of the guy in the chair? But there's this complete otherworldliness, the whole alien thing, the whole feel of the film. It was a huge, it was an epic, but done on a small, a small screen, you know, a small, a small scale. It hinted at all kinds of things. And that's Lovecraft. You get a glimpse in the shadows, you get this, you get that, you get, and nothing's explained. You leave it to the audience's imagination or their intelligence. You say, oh, wow, okay. I just watched an old Hammer film. I'll throw this in just the other night, The Abominable Snowman. It sounds a preposterous you know, title for a film, but it was written by Nigel Neal, um, who did the Quatermass stuff. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And it was made by Hammer, and it was an old black and white one in the very early days of production. And I was so taken with this film. I saw it many years ago. I just uh, streamed it as a treat. I thought, I wonder if I'd still like this. And it was so, the implications in it, they go up into the Himalayas, you know, they do a, a glimpse of this, a glimpse of that, that's it. And you, you, you feel your mind expanding out. And by the end of the film, you're convinced that these Yeti are another species, an alien species, much better than we are. And they're in the mountains waiting for us to screw up so then they'll take over. And all this is implied all the way through. And you don't see anything very much. Just a head, a sound effect, a footprint, but it goes into a jigsaw. And that's what I loved about the, the original alien. The idea that it hinted at so much. This son of a bitch is huge. I mean, it's like a man, it, it's big. Okay, son. Now, I don't know, you know, how I wasn't in on the process. I have no idea what they were doing. But, you know, 
by the time they get around to Prometheus, it seemed to me he's rewriting. I thought the engineers were wonderful. I thought they were a great creation, but I didn't see the connections they were making uh, for that film at the time of the original Alien. I couldn't see any of those connections. The idea that the chair, for example, was one of these, I mean, it seemed to me they just put a helmet on the guy to make him look like the original film. <laughs> it didn't seem to click. I'm not criticizing, but you know, I'm, I'm, a, but I'm in the audience the same as anybody else. I'm entitled to think, that doesn't work. What are they doing? I mean, the engineers were, you know, something else, the idea that they, you know, constructed these things. And now, of course, it's gone on to, you know, having a robot, Michael Fassbender robot. It's turned into a kind of, you know, Victor Frankenstein. I mean, the whole thing's utterly preposterous, you know. That's just my, you know, God bless them, you know, they made the films after it. Include me out. I much prefer the, you know, the hinted out. <laughs> The ambiguity, yeah, yeah, the mystery, for sure. Yeah. I don't have much more for you. Patrick, I know, has a question or two. Again, thank you so much for coming on. One, I, I, I get, my que next question is, where did Alien take you in your career? After working on that, where'd you go? From Alien, I went to, I did The Watcher in the Woods for Disney. Yes, love that movie. Just uh, watched it recently. The photographic effects. Again, for another... Another director I, I admired very much, John Hawk. And um, that's one of my favorites. I loved that film. I loved the whole process again. I was working in, more in animation and opticals. We were at uh, Pinewood Studios and we were doing photographic effects in the camera. So we did a fair bit of that. And there's a lot of you know, front projection. We did all that stuff too. But then I was getting more into uh, learning photography, you know, the camera. So I worked with John Bowman for a wee while on his Aperion thing, Excalibur. Then I got asked onto the Dark Crystal. That was a year. Um, I, I did know. all that. Yeah, yeah, I was on Dark Crystal for a year. I've just been thinking about that too in connection with Alien. All the skies you see, the storm skies at the beginning, that was me. I did all that. Hmm. I'm so proud of that. That voiceover at the beginning of the film and, and the lightning and the thunder, yeah, the crackle of the electricity. And, this, and then the crystal cracked. All these clouds are rolling over this, the Skeksis, you know, the castle. I mean, if I never did anything else. It's my all-time favorite movie. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Jamie has a podcast, actually, about the Dark Crystal. Well, I don't have a podcast. I've co-hosted a podcast. Co-hosted a podcast. On, about, about the Dark Crystal. Yeah, I, I've got a, a very interesting history, and I'm really good friends with Louis Leterrier, who directed the Netflix yeah. series. Yeah. So I ended yeah. up hanging out with him during his final days in the editing room. Okay. on that show so that but the original dark crystal is a profound piece of art well again that's the physicality you know all this stuff was made because i'm i suppose a wee bit of a creative eccentric in the midsummer at elstree studios and they were shooting i think it was return of the jedi i think it was next door because i remember i was doing stuff for the skies and i had a big tank and i was just i was just left alone to do this stuff and I had a crew, you know, it's a photographic, you know, camera crew. We come off Superman and they come and walk with me on this stuff. You turn around and, as I say, I was just thinking about this. Something about water, it draws people. Anthony Daniels was standing there one day, you know, the C-3PO guy, you know, smiling that big smile and asking me what I was doing. And then Mark Hamill would show up. Oh, the Monty Python guy, Terry Gilliam, who I worked with for a while and I think he did, he did call the Time Bandits. But... I used to, in, in the midsummer, they had a back lot that was made up to look like the Dark Crystal. They had a lot of plants, starfish and stuff. I used to get my sleeping bag. I used to sleep up there in the summer because I love waking up with all this, you know, toadstools and mushrooms and stuff around, all sprayed these colors. It was a wonderful time, guys. I feel like that sleeping bag deserves its own docu-series. <laughs> that thing has been <laughs> some amazing places. <laughs> I should have kept it, Patrick. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah. I, before I ask my, my final question for you, uh, I, I will let you know that we watch The Dark Crystal, you know, in our house and show our kids who are quite young it, you know, yes. with relative frequency. And the early scenes, which I adore with the sky that you're talking about, um, I, I think this will be a, a nice little uh, thing to know is that my kids always get afraid of it because it's so ominous, right? And so they yes. do that thing where they kind of like hide for a second. And then I always see, especially Henry, who's a little a little bit braver sometimes than Jude, his elder brother. I still I see him kind of pulling the blanket down and looking at it like this, <laughs> which I think gets at exactly what 
is powerful <laughs> yeah. about cinema, you know, about films like Dark Crystal and Alien and yeah. anything that puts you in that headspace where you're kind of afraid to look, but you really need to, you know, it shows you yeah. things that are, yeah. you can't, there's no other medium that can do it. Um, so anyway, for my, for my final question, which is sort of to that, uh, you know, we've, we've interviewed just on this podcast alone, probably 30 or 40, at least people at this point. Um, and something, you know, we ask pretty much all of them is, uh, is what is alien to you? And this, as somebody who actually built part of alien, this is a, a, a pretty historic day for, for Jamie and, and I as friends and colleagues, but also just for people listening to the show. So this is the first time we've been able to ask this about for somebody who actually was there when it was happening. What is alien to you? Alien to me is a very vital part of my life because it, it, was a, it was a project that had an atmosphere like no other. Each film has its own unique take, but Alien was for a first time experience. I was very lucky, it was a godsend. The guys who worked on it, we, as I say, we were a small crew, they became to me like brothers. And everywhere I went after that, I took them with me. That's how important it was. It wasn't just a job. It was something else, and I, I took all those guys with me. And I remember a young director, you know, trying to learn his craft, and experimentation. There was no threat, although the film was about threat. It was just a very, very happy experience. Man, I'm so glad that meeting got canceled and I was able to sit here for this because <laughs> it's been so cool. Thank you it's so much, a, John. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank have you. Got, have you got everything you need? Or you, you're all right? Yeah, uh, I just also wanted to, I mean, I know that uh, your Facebook page is closed down, but I've seen a lot of the photos that you were posting and they were really, really beautiful as a photographer oh, myself. Um, I, 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 People either have the eye and they don't. Obviously you do. And uh, so I really have been able to appreciate your work. And again, thank you so much for coming on for us. Like an interview like this alien is, is a very, it's almost a mystical spiritual experience of a film. Uh, the series that we devoted to the first film, we called the forbidden planet because it, that's the texture. Like you're in, it's like you're in this mystery box and no one's telling you much and you're just sort of on your own. I don't know any other film that's conjured that kind of, that physical texture, the spiritual texture, the alchemy that you were saying, than Alien. It's just, it's it's in a league of its own. So, so thank you for sharing. You, yeah, I'm so pleased you said that because Forbidden Planet is one of my favorites. Well, thank you very much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.